Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our pulpit minister, Mike Johnson, as he brings today's lesson. I have been wearing contacts since I was in the 10th grade without any aid to my eyes. My eyesight is something like 2200. I figured out what that means finally. If I'm supposed to see it at 200 feet, I got to get to 20 to be able to see it without contacts. And they are fascinating. My, how they have changed through the years. The very first ones I put in, I couldn't even open my eye. They were actually made out of real glass. The first context, real glass, couldn't even open my eye. And then the guy said, we got this new thing. Tell me about it. Called soft lens. Let me try. A few years ago, the optometer said, we got this new thing. Multifocal vision contacts. I said, man, let me try whatever it is. Here's what it is. People have asked me many times, is it confusing? Is it difficult? Some will see me reading small print. How can you do that? Well, it's contacts. But here's what else it is. If I am reading like this, my right eye is doing the reading. If I'm looking at you, the left eye is doing the work. Multifocal vision. You might think, well, that would give me a headache. That'd make me dizzy. I had a friend of mine one time who got trifocal glasses. He was a golfer. He said, I had a real hard time. Every time I moved my head, the ball would move. He said, I looked down and he said, I said, what do you do? He said, well, I see three balls. What am I supposed to do? He said, I decided to hit the one in the middle. <laughs> Closest he could do. Trifocal, bifocal, multifocal. God calls us to multi focal vision. We need to be people who can have the nearsightedness that is clear and the farsightedness that is also clear. Today we're going to talk about spiritual multifocal vision. This morning we will consider the nearsightedness and then tonight in another of our Sunday evening sit-downs with Preacher Mike, we're going to talk about the far-sighted part. As we think about the near-sighted vision that God calls us to have, I'm reading in Scripture as you are, and you hear that there's a real problem and that problem is sin. The Bible says that sin is universal. Sin is universal. 
No matter where you go and whom you see, no matter where you have been, you have been with people who are sinners. Psalm 14, starting in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there is anyone who does good and does not sin. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. In Psalm 130 and in verse 3, the psalmist said, Lord, if you would mark all iniquities, Lord, who would be able to stand? The Proverbs writer said, Is there anyone who can say, I am pure from my sin, I am good? You know the passage of Romans 3 and 23. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Galatians 3 and 22, Paul said that the law has confined all of us under sin. When I am looking at my nearsightedness, I have to say, all people are filled with sin. It's just a fact of life. But guess what? It's not just a universal problem in the world. It's a problem right here. It's a problem in this church and in that church and in that church. It is a problem with all Christian people. For John would record in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us, verse 8. And verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And in chapter 5 and verse 16, he makes a statement that begins this way. If you see a brother committing sin, and he goes on to say about praying for that person, but in so doing, he admits that you can see when I sin, and I might be able to see when you sin, because in Christianity, we are all still sinners. Yes, we are, and that's what the Bible teaches. And when I'm doing nearsighted work, I have to admit that I'm a sinner. We are under the influence. We're around those who sin. But I also have to know that as a Christian, what might sound to be contradictory, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the one hand, yes, Christians sin. But on the other hand, 
We are not condemned people. And when I am using my nearsighted look, I need to accept that as well. That we are not condemned before God. And I need to accept that concept. I would like to encourage you to read 1 John 1 John is filled with the best material that can tell me about who I really am. John tells me everything I need to know about me, even though I'm a sinner and not being condemned. Because John says, 1 John 2 You are a child of God. You're a child of God. And as children of God, we are people whom God claims as his own. Now, I also know that we are all children of God and just like children of today, We disappointed our parents, and my children have disappointed me. We have disappointed our God. But not one time in my life when I disappointed my parents did I ever feel that I was condemned. I never felt like they were about to throw me out. There are some children physically whom parents have fought for their entire lives. And they just keep disappointing. But what parent ever gives up? None. They may take drastic measures, but they never just give up. God said... We're his children. And he doesn't give up on us. John would say in chapter 4 that we abide in God. We abide. We live. We dwell. We have a place in God. When that child goes away, they can always come home. When the prodigal son took off, wasted the inheritance that his father had given him, the father said he can come home. Because this is where you abide, this is your place. This is your home. And no matter how many times you mess up, no matter how many times you disappoint and fail, you have a home. Because here we abide. And then John says the reason we do is because the Son of God was manifested to take away sin. Sin. 
1 John 3 and 5. My sins are gone. My sins have been taken away. One of the main differences between the covenant of the Jews and the covenant under which we live is on this fact. Every Jew who lived and died an entire life under the Jewish system was told every single day without fail, without stop, you are guilty. You are guilty. Have you ever thought, tried to figure out how many animals were killed in sacrifice to God in the Old Testament covenant? The number would be staggering. The blood that flowed every single day. In the temple, they actually had a trough that would catch all the blood that would flow to a receptacle. And the trough was hardly ever dry. And every time an animal cried under the cut of a knife, the sound said, you're guilty. But in the new covenant, been one sacrifice. The blood flowed one time. The trough is still never dry. If we are always in contact with the blood of Christ, but it doesn't say you're guilty. It says you're forgiven. It says you're clean. It says it's okay. Because in my nearsighted reading, I'm forgiven. In chapter 2, he was writing in verses 12 through 14, and he used this phrase, you have overcome the wicked one. Does that mean we never sin again? It means that even though the wicked one can get us from time to time, we've overcome because his only real weapon is death that separates us from God. That's it. And that's been taken care of. We've overcome. We don't walk around condemned with no place because God has already taken away the only weapon that the wicked one even has, which is why twice in chapter 5 and in chapter 3, John would say, you do not sin and you cannot sin. 
Not that we don't commit individual acts of sin because we've already seen that we do. Here's the difference. We are not constantly reminded and punished remembering the sins that we have that God is keeping a record of. Lord, if you marked every iniquity, who could stand up? That's what he said. We are people. When we do our nearsighted vision, we need to see that we are children of God. We abide in him. Our, our sin has been taken away. We've overcome. And therefore, we cannot be people. We are not people. Constantly being reminded by God of our sins. But rather, we've been forgiven. Turn, if you will, to 1 John 5. I want you to mark this verse. I hope you don't get tired of this, even though I think sometimes even I get tired of it. Here's another verse that I found for the first time to sit and think about. 1 John 5, 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. When I'm doing my nearsighted vision, God wants me to understand Here's what's fascinating about that word. In its original language, here's what it means. From one side of the mind to the other side of the mind. Isn't it interesting? The two lobes, the two sides of the brain. The left to control the right, the right to control the left. And in that time, they used a word that said, God wants us to understand from the left to the right. He wants us to have a full mind. To know Jesus. And that word means to experience him. To have a relationship, to be with, to know Jesus. When I'm in my nearsighted view, God wants me from one side of my brain to the other to understand not only Him, but to understand who we are with Him. Because John says, 1 John 3, number one, I need to have this understanding of my life and my relationship 
And I can have it because I serve a God who knows me better than I know myself. Chapter 3, verse 20, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And he knows all things. Do you ever get tired of yourself? Do you ever get tired of looking at the same old picture, the same old problem, the same old temptations, and oftentimes the same old reactions? You get tired? Do you start condemning yourself if your heart condemns you? John says, I want you to know from one side of your brain to the other that God knows you better than you even know yourself. And while your heart may be condemning you, you are not necessarily condemned. Why? Because you're a child of God. I need to have that understanding. So that I can really know who I am. Number two, I can have that understanding because I have someone fighting for me who constantly fights for me. 1 John 2 and verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ. Thankfully, I've never been in enough trouble to need, nor had a business big enough to need a lawyer on retainer. I guess there are some who do heard of it. Guess what? Christians have a lawyer on retainer. Jesus Christ in the courtroom of his own father before the throne is advocating for you. He's standing there on your behalf, on my behalf. He's constantly fighting for me. I need to understand that I don't have to fight this thing by myself. I don't have to prove myself constantly over and over. Jesus is there doing it in my behalf. He's on retainer for me. Third, I have a relationship through his spirit. John says we have the spirit, his spirit, who's been given to us. I've been thinking some about that recently. The Ecclesiastes writer says that when you die, the body returns to the dust from which it came, but the spirit returns to God who gave it. When God breathed into to Adam his own spirit and he became a living soul. And when you were created, the spirit from God, a piece of himself, 
was placed inside of you, given you a special relationship being created in his image. And an even closer relationship when you decide to be one of his children. And in that relationship, I come to know who I really am. I come to know in my near-sighted reading, I come to know who I really am. And finally, John says in 1 John chapter 5, I've written these things to you that you might know that you have eternal life. From one side of my brain to another, I need to be assured of my eternal salvation. I'm not trying to present some kind of better felt than told concept. I'm not trying to present some type of idea that throws out all of my responsibility and my free will. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. I need to see myself more like God sees me than what I see myself. And if I can look at myself through God's eyes, I'm a much better person than if I look at myself through my eyes. It was Paul who said, he looked through a glass dimly, but then face to face, I'll know even as I am known, 1 Corinthians 13. James put it this way, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the works will be blessed in his deed. If I will do my near-sighted reading of Scripture, looking closely at who God says I am, both sides of my mind can buy into it. And I can have a life that is much more assured, much more excited, much more dedicated because God is showing me through his eyes who I am. And I don't have to look just through my own. You know what the understanding is? Who I am is not about who I am. Who I am is about who God is. That's my understanding. And I am what I am because God is who He is. And that nearsighted vision ought to give us peace and joy and excitement and intention Commitment, dedication, all kinds of things from one side to the other. If you haven't chosen to be a child of God, he's not going to force you. He'll let you make your own decision. 
If you've not been immersed into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that's where the sin is removed, where you're not reminded every day that you're a sinner. You can do that today. If you want our shepherds to pray with you and for you in having a better walk with our Lord, will you let us know as we stand and sing together? We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m., followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.